This is BBC Radio 3, and now Discovering Music with Stephen Johnson, which this week features the BBC Singers, conducted by Bob Chilcott, in a programme exploring some of Poulenc's religious choral music. As a young composer... Francis Poulenc was virtually the embodiment of the idea of the enfant terrible. Poulenc was the kind of composer who, as a young man, loved to shock. He loved to create a frisson. He liked to introduce an element that would perhaps just unsettle his audience a little bit here or there, or even make them perhaps a little cross. He was all for introducing elements of the surreal into his music, elements of the music hall, vulgarity, strangely simple devices of the kind associated with his friend Eric Satie, or with that number one star iconoclast of his age, Igor Stravinsky, who he very much admired. But then, in 1936, almost exactly halfway through his life, Poulenc had a midlife crisis. What precipitated this crisis was that he heard of the horrible death in a car accident of a friend and fellow composer, Pierre-Octave Ferrou, and Poulenc was terribly, terribly shocked. Now, at the time, Poulenc was staying near the town of Rocamador in central France. There's a shrine at Rocamador that contains a small statue, a sacred image, called the Vierge Noire, the Black Virgin of Rocamador, which has miraculous cures associated with it. It's still a very popular place of visitation today. Poulenc wrote about this later on. He said, The horrible death of my musician friend, who was so full of energy, had completely stupefied me. Ruminating on the frailty of human life, I was drawn once again to the spiritual life. That same evening, we visited Rocamador. I began my litany à la Vierge Noire. simple at first, and then that extraordinary dissonant intrusion from the organ, suggesting that there is something underneath this apparently simple surface, something more urgent and passionate. Lovely singing there from the ladies of the BBC Singers with our conductor today, Bob Chilcott. Poulenc took away from his visit to the shrine at Rocamadour some verses that were associated with the shrine, and this is how he set them in this piece, Litany à la Vierge Noire. Poulenc, like, of course, many Frenchmen of his generation, had been brought up as a Roman Catholic, but he'd lost his faith at the death of his very devout father in 1917. That was the point at which he'd really completely abandoned himself to the chic world of Parisian modernism, to what that famous English Puritan writer John Bunyan called Vanity Fair. But then, in 1936, it was the shock of this death of his friend that brought him back to his faith, as so often death in our life shocks us into thinking about eternity. But Poulenc was also attracted, after all that superficial cleverness of his Enfant Terrible days, to the simplicity of the devotion he saw in the pilgrims who visited the shrine at Rocamador. There was no irony, no cleverness here, no posing or wearing of masks, just simple, unaffected eloquence. And this is what he wrote about it. In this work, he's talking about the litany, 
I tried to depict the mood of country devotion that struck me so deeply in this mountain locale. Thus, this invocation must be sung very simply, without pretension. Well, I think that aims very clear right from the beginning of the litany, which, which we hear not first of all the women's voices, but the organ. We have an organ prelude played today by Stephen Disley. Now, this is on the surface, again, very simple, but underneath the simple chant-like figure on the top, you have these very interestingly piquant major-minor alternations. Let's hear that organ prelude at the beginning. As I said, a very simple chant-like line on the top, but much more interesting harmonies on the bottom. surprise scrunch at the end there. There are quite a few of them in this piece. What we hear after that is that simple chant-like music, the choral music that we heard at the beginning of the program, a prayer for mercy, just the women's voices in three simple parts. And then, in what follows, well, interestingly enough, the poem itself suggests that it might have been performed in a kind of a responsorial way, like a liturgy, an exchange between the priest and the congregation responding. Now, Poulenc doesn't actually imitate that in the way that he sets the poem. The women's voices tend to sing together. But he does reproduce that effect of the responsorial, of the priest and the congregation responding to one another, in the way that the organ responds to and introduces what the chorus sings. And those organ dissonances are really quite fascinating because, as I said, the women's voices writing is very simple and chant-like and tonal, whereas the organ writing often culminates on these big dissonances. It's as though the organ is expressing the grief, it's bearing the charge of Poulenc's experience that had driven him to this reconciliation with his faith, while the simplicity of devotion is represented in what the women sing. strong and very effective ritual contrast between those simple chart lines and those strikingly dissonant organ contributions. Well, the text of the poem is basically a prayer to the Virgin to intercede to Christ. But there are one or two names that Poulenc sets in this text that are worth picking out. The first is Zacchaeus, the tax collector who's mentioned in the Gospels, who climbed the tree to see Jesus as he entered Jerusalem. And he's connected with the figure, probably fictional, of St. Amador, who is supposed by legend 
to have founded the shrine at Rocamadour that Poulenc visited. There's also a very striking French national element. At one point, there's a mention of Roland, as mentioned in the medieval masterpiece Chanson de Roland. So that's uh, making a strong connection there between Poulenc's homeland and the devotional element of the music. But at the end, we have a final prayer for mercy, also a prayer for Our Lady to intercede. Our Lady, pray for us that we may be worthy of Jesus Christ. And finally, we have an organ postlude in which the organ distills the chant lines into figures that rotate around three notes. You'll find one little figure at the end of the piece that actually returns again and again, not only in this final organ postlude, but in other Poulenc works too. We're going to hear it return in the Mass in G major that we'll hear later in the program. It's almost like a little devotional signature of Poulenc's. It's almost as though he's identifying himself personally, his candle lit in the frame at this point, his, his own personal intercession. This is how the litany ends. Yes, that little figure, da, da, dee, da, da, da. that's the figure I was referring to. As I said, we'll hear it again in the Mass. It's like Pulak identifying his own personal signature at this point. There's also that lovely final chord, not quite the chord you expect, which is a reminder that although Poulenc may have, as it were, turned his back on some of his former chic modernism, he hasn't entirely forgotten that ability to create new and surprising sounds. Anyway, it's time we heard a complete performance now of the Litany à la Vierge Noire. It's performed for us by the women of the BBC Singers, conducted by Bob Chilcott with the organist Stephen Disley.
Poulenc's Litany à la Vierge Noire. It was sung by the women of the BBC singers, conductor Bob Chilcott, with the organist Stephen Disley. The next work we're to hear, the main work in today's programme, is the work he wrote the following year for unaccompanied choir, the Mass in G Major. It was probably inevitable that eventually Poulenc would return to the text of the Mass as an expression of his restored religious faith. Although, interestingly enough, he chose the form of the Missa Brevis, the short Mass. That's the form that omits the credo. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. It's also significant that the score bears a dedication to Poulenc's father. You may remember it was his father's death that turned Poulenc away from the faith originally in 1917. And it was significant, surely, that he remembered his father as he returned to his faith. Poulenc tells us in one of his letters at the time that he was thinking of something deliberately uncultivated here in this Mass, something simple, in a way like the devotion he saw at Rocamadour, but with a new element, as he wrote, it has a realistic side, if I may say so, which is characteristic of Mediterranean art. Well, I think I know what he means there. I'm sure many of you have noticed, looking at, for instance, medieval Italian religious paintings, how often when they depict paradise or heaven or the life of the saints, how worldly those depictions of heaven look. We may go in for misty, ethereal visions and half-lights in these northern countries. It seems that the Mediterranean medieval tendency was to represent heaven as just another version of earth with all the bad bits removed. Heaven, in fact, looks like a normal, small Italian city-state, but without, as it were, you say, the dark underside. That, it seems, is what Poulenc was thinking of when he came to write the Mass in G Major. It begins, as all Mass settings do, with the words of the Kyrie, Kyrie eleison. The text of the Mass, of course, is Latin, although at the very beginning, the Kyrie eleison is a survivor of the ancient Greek of the early Byzantine church. One thing I should say about the performance we're about to hear is that we're pronouncing the Latin slightly differently from what you'd normally hear in this country, something closer, we hope, to the original French pronunciation that Poulenc would have known in his own lifetime. But anyway, that roughness, that sort of savage style that Poulenc said that he had tried to recreate in this mass, you can hear it absolutely at the beginning of the Kyrie, which has a kind of stark, impressive quality, rather like a Byzantine icon. We have very chant-like lines on the top, on the first sopranos and the first basses, while underneath the second sopranos and the second basses hold sustained notes on the bottom. There's no warm filling in the middle. It is, as I said, a very stark kind of sound. Well, what follows that is interesting. There's a bit of kind of classic imitation between the tenors and the sopranos, the kind of thing you might expect to find in a Palestrina mass, a Renaissance mass. That's rather unusual in this piece. That kind of polyphonic texture is unusual in Poulenc's mass. What he does is build to a climax, and then if you listen to what the sopranos and the tenors are singing, it's a little figure which might be rather familiar after the ending of the litany that we heard just a moment or two ago. It's the same figure we heard at the end of the litany, Poulenc's devotional signature that he's putting into this mass at this very early stage. 
Then comes the central section of the Kyrie, Christe eleison, Christ have mercy. And this is the point at which the prayer, as it were, becomes more personal, because instead of addressing an abstract Lord, Lord have mercy, it's now a person in the form of Christ, God in human form. At this point, the writing becomes more flowing, sometimes partly choral, sometimes partly independent, especially in the final crescendo. But it is a more mellifluous, smoother kind of writing that suggests a kind of more personal, intimate form of address. gorgeous, scrunchy harmonies that sometimes are very slightly surprising. They're never quite what you expect. After the central address to Christ, Christe eleison, there's a return of the Kyrie. Only this time, Poulenc introduces some new musical effects. Remember he talked in that letter about having cultivated some deliberately rough writing in this mass. Well, it's a very fine example of that near the end. This is what the basses are singing to the words Kyrie eleison. Yes, it's as hard to sing as it sounds. On top of that, there are some jagged figures for the rest of the choir, which don't make it any easier for anybody else. We really do need superhuman singers, actually, to get those notes at all. It's remarkably difficult, some of that writing, so we are very lucky to have this exceptional choir, the BBC Singers, today to illustrate this for us. The Kyrie, however, comes to rest peacefully with the final imploration for mercy. And then, at the end, after all these gorgeous, scrunchy, additive, almost jazzy harmonies in places, he comes to rest on the purest, simplest G major chord. Very often at the end of these movements, there's a sense of coming back to the common chord, the basic triad of music, as though coming back to the essence of spirituality. It certainly does feel like a marvelous return, as it were, to the key element. After that, Kyrie comes the longest movement, the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to his people. There's an element of the responsorial here, too, in Poulenc's word settings. Remember, we noticed that in the way that the voices and the organ responded to one another in the litanies. Here, at first, it sounds as if he's going for kind of traditional gender roles, because we have an alternation between the male and female. But then Poulenc begins to mix up the voices so that we get, for instance, altos and tenors and basses alternating with sopranos and tenors. I wonder if he's being a bit mischievous here, playing with reversing the usual gender roles demanded by the church. I wouldn't be surprised. Gloria, 
Nicholas Cord just left hanging in the air at the end there. Now again, there's a kind of shift of emphasis in the text of the Mass. At this point, again, the, the text homes in on the image of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God in human form. As in the Kyrie, Poulenc's manner of address becomes more personal. It's quieter, it's more subdued, and it's more intimate. You'll notice that there are little groups of individuals within the choir who start almost singing to each other at this point. It's a reminder, I think, perhaps, the individuals whose lives Christ touched when he was on earth. If some of you heard echoes of Poulenc's gorgeous organ concerto in that passage there, that's not accidental. Poulenc's works do make a habit of cross-referring to each other from this point onwards in his career, as though to emphasize the fact that there is now no real distinction between the secular and the sacred. They all interpenetrate. Well, near the end of the Gloria comes a rather extraordinary piece of word setting, which again reminds us of how much Poulenc admired Stravinsky, who loved, as he said, treating the sound of Latin percussively. He takes the phrase miserere nobis, have mercy on us, and stretches the syllables so it goes mi, i, ze, e, re, re, no, o, bi, is, like that. It's hard enough to say, let alone to sing. But you hear it for the first time in the top basses, the first basses, like this. Well done. <laughs> it's impressive enough in itself, but actually what it does is it provides a useful linking device between this section and the final section of the Gloria, which is a hymn of praise, as is appropriate. We hear it in the words quoniam, for instance, the same splitting up quoniam tu solus sanctus, for you alone are holy, am, like this, and through even to the final amen, where you hear the basses again, taking it to the same rising scale and stretching it out, amen, like that.
there's another splendid ringing common chord at the end. It's always these movements seem to home in on the, the triad at the end. What a marvelous sound that was. Thank you. Now, there's no credo movement in this mass. The creed is absent. Now, as I said, that's fairly typical for a setting of what is called the Missa Brevis, the short mass. It's also possible that at this stage, Poulenc didn't set the creed with all its niceties of dogma because he was still wrestling with certain aspects of the faith he'd somewhat mysteriously, and to his own surprise, found his way back to. He certainly had a lifelong problem, as we know, with reconciling his faith with his own homosexuality. No, at this point, Poulenc goes straight through from the Gloria to the central mystery of the Mass, which is the consecration and the administration of the sacrament. And the first movement that we hear is the Sanctus, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord, the words attributed to the angels. So actually, bearing in mind that these are angelic words, Poulenc leaves out the bases at the beginning of this movement so that we just have the higher voices. You have that effect of weightlessness, something soaring above the ground. simple folk chant-like lines. And notice the repetition there of each phrase. Repetition is always a key element in ritual. It's fascinating to see how Poulenc uses it in this mass to keep us aware that this is a liturgical piece. It's interesting as well that however simple the lines are on the top, the harmonies remain very rich and delicious underneath. Poulenc did say at one time that his faith was always that of a simple village priest, but clearly he was the kind of French village priest who loves the pleasures of the table as well. There's almost gastronomic pleasure he takes sometimes in the delicious harmonies he creates underneath. Following the Sanctus movement, we have the Benedictus. Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. And then at the end of the Benedictus, with this very lyrical movement, this is some of the most smoothly flowing music in the whole of the Mass, there's another strange effect, an interesting vocal effect, rather like that quo ni am that we heard towards the end of the Gloria. What Poulenc does at this point is, again, a rather Stravinskyan effect. In the Hosanna, he has the lower voices do a double accent on each sound so that you get a kind of ho-ho, zaha, naha, while the higher parts sustain the note so that you can hear the word that's being sung. It's very striking. <laughs> It just intensifies. That gives an extra sharp edge to that original chord, the harmony at the beginning of that passage. And again, the E major simple purity at the end. But for simple purity, perhaps the most striking movement of all is the final movement, the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. This is the most intimate prayer of all in the Mass, and it's sung or spoken as the congregation approaches the altar to receive the sacrament. At the beginning, we have just one soprano on her own. It's a beautifully simple and affecting and, as I said, extremely intimate way to treat this opening prayer. It's marked in the score, très pur, clair et modéré, very pure, bright and moderate.
Simplicity rediscovered, with a kind of radiant purity, very appropriate to this stage in the Mass. And there's a responsorial element in the text at this point, too. Lamb of God, who takest away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. This is often conducted in, in celebrations of the Mass as a dialogue between the priest and the congregation. But the way that Poulenc uses the soprano and the alto voices for the first part of the sentence means, again, this isn't a simple case of an adult male priest leading a mixed congregation. There's a kind of mixing up of the genders going on here. And just as at the beginning of the piece, in that exquisite soprano solo, we heard hints of the opening Kyrie from the Mass, now Poulenc returns, literally, to the chant-like figure that began the Mass. It's a very appropriate device at this point. It means that the Mass, in a sense, has come full circle, emphasizing, again, that religious ritualistic element. It reminds me of what T.S. Eliot wrote in his poem, Four Quartets, In my beginning is my ending. There's something strangely appropriate and, and right and organic about bringing the opening back at the end of a setting like this. Then, at the very end, well, I don't think I'll spoil it for you by getting the chorus to sing it for you. We were thinking of doing that at one stage. We think, actually, it's probably better if you hear it in context and just appreciate the beautiful simplicity of Poulenc's ending as he meant it to be heard. But it really does underline that point he made about wanting this, this mass to be sung and heard without pretension, no grandeur or mysticizing, no daring, no challenging naughty boy tricks, but just everybody at the end, after a few exquisite bars of soprano solo to a simple four-note figure, everybody comes to rest on one just solo G for the final word, patsem, peace, and a more appropriate image could hardly be imagined, I think, for the conclusion of this beautiful unaccompanied choral setting. Well, we'll hear the complete Mass in G major by Poulenc in a moment, but before that, has anybody any questions they'd like to ask? Has it been performed in church as a, as a Mass often? It's not often performed in church, partly because it's so difficult. 
Um, and most church choirs, I think, would find it very challenging, although there are now, of course, some excellent church choirs. But then it's quite interesting how often writers of this kind of liturgical choral music have challenged the expectations of their day. Um, I don't know how many of you know Rachmaninoff's wonderful setting of the Vespers. I think one of the most famous moments of all that is at the end of the Nunc Dimittis movement where the basses sing a bottom B flat. It's a most amazing sound. It's a, it's a sound that, you know, it just sounds like it's coming up from the earth. And it sounds like the absolute archetype of what Russian choral singing is about. And yet when Rachmaninoff showed the score, first of all, to the conductor of the first performance, he looked at this B-flat and said, where the hell do you think I'm going to find basses who can sing that? Wonderful phrase. It's like looking for asparagus at Christmas. Uh, so Poulenc must have known that he would have been putting even the finest choirs of his day to the test. But what a good thing he did because it's as choirs catch up and learn how to do these sorts of things, then we get gorgeous things like the performance we've just heard. But no, it's not often done, I think, in a liturgical context simply because it's so hard. I think you had a question here, madam. Yes. Did Poulang's life-changing experience had a permanent influence on his composition writing? Yes, I think the answer to that is certainly so. For a start, it added this whole new liturgical or devotional dimension that we haven't had before. But also the kind of overspill between the religious writing that he concentrated on after the litany and his more secular pieces. Even a concert work like the organ concerto in G minor, for instance, quotes from this. And the two worlds, as it were, spill over into each other. They refer to each other like that. It certainly left its mark on him for the rest of his life. I remember talking to the marvelous old critic, Felix Aprihamian, who alas died recently at a grand old age. He remembered Poulenc's marvelous combination, as he put it, of intense devotion and very sincere devotion and his marvelous worldliness. I remember actually one story I remember being particularly fond of that Felix told was that Felix went to great efforts to preserve a tree outside his house in Muswell Hill and provided the council with all sorts of reasons with why they shouldn't pull it down to do with structure and to do with the water table and everything like this. But the real reason he wanted to keep the tree was because he said he'd never forget the image of Poulenc with his gauloises hanging out of his mouth, relieving himself against the tree after his dinner, after a particularly splendid dinner at which they had discussed the mysteries of the faith alongside the the excellence of the foie gras. And I think that really says everything about Poulenc. This is a man who knew no distinction between the worldly and the spiritual. The two were all, as it were, part of one creation. But certainly this new dimension enriched his music making. I think you can begin to see the beginnings of a change, like that kind of chant-like simple writing that we saw in the litany and in the mass. You hear more and more in his music. And yet also that richness and that naughtiness don't go away too. So. It's time now to hear a complete performance of Poulenc's Mass in G Major, written in 1937 in memory of his father. If you do know this work, then you'll probably know what a treat you're in for. If not, all I can say is it is a gorgeous piece, one of the most remarkable modern choral unaccompanied settings of the Mass text. Poulenc's Mass in G Major is performed for us now by the BBC singers. The soloists are Olivia Robinson, soprano, Kim Porter, alto, and Andrew Murgatroyd, tenor. And the conductor is Bob Chilcott. <laughs> 